0: Albanians have been saved for the last five minutes. Yes, yes, probably, okay, yes. Let's, right, let's, let's keep right. that on
1: the, on the down low. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> welcome, everybody, to another Growing Down live stream slash mutations. This is a bit of a hybrid episode, as you may have noticed. And we are joined today by the great Ben Burgess, who is the uh, host of Give Them an Argument show, which is a new show, uh, relatively new.
0: Yeah, and... it's uh, nine episodes in, so yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so... Yeah, Ben is the author of the self-titled Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, and the forthcoming uh, book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, which I just love the, the title of that, and hopefully we'll get into that a little bit today. Um, what we wanted to do is to really just kind of open up, and with... Uh, talking with you about uh, your recent debates with folks like uh, Ayn Randians and libertarians and (laughs) how's that been going in terms of i've just been noticing you've been uh, jumping on these debates uh, more frequently and i'm wondering if that's sort of part of your praxis uh philosophically speaking in terms of speaking across the aisle
0: yeah no for sure i mean I, i think that one thing that you know i've been pushing since uh you know since writing gave them an argument the book is that the left? Um, you know, shouldn't be afraid that we're maybe giving people legitimacy by arguing with them, or you know, that like uh, that uh, thinking that it's just pointless to do that, you know, because because no one can be convinced that it's actually that it's it's a worthwhile thing to do. It helps us clarify, uh, you know, our own ideas to uh, you know to to sort of be forced to make those arguments. Uh, it, uh, and, uh, it, it helps us not lose, you know, persuadable people, you know, who might, if, uh, if we never get around to really like explaining exactly what's wrong with what, you know, the case that people on the other side are making, uh, you know, then, then they might kind of drift, uh, drift away from us. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, like, like it's, it's fun or, or maybe at least it's fun if you're a certain kind of strange nerd.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, ryan over here uh is is also very interested in in the the art of debating online and i think it's it's a very interesting approach to to not silo ourselves and not just remain on the left but actually reach across the aisle learn something from that kind of engagement um and and do you do you find that there is there is a genuine like i know you've mentioned this before but you reach somebody one or two people at least you know during an argument do you find converts or folks who kind of change Uh, oh yeah no
0: for Yeah, for sure, Uh, and I think that sometimes people make the mistake of thinking it's pointless because nobody ever changes their mind, and it's a germ of truth to that. Like, when they say that, uh, I think what they're really primarily thinking of uh, is that it's very rare that anybody changes their mind, like, immediately in the room, right? And, you know, like, I think realistically, that's just not how persuasion really works. Uh, Certainly, when I can think back to all the times that I've changed my mind about things, like, usually... Uh, when I first hear a good argument for a position, I don't like my initial reaction is probably going to be irritation. Uh, but then it uh, then it sort of starts brewing in in your head, you know, and uh, and and it starts to bother you. And you might realize, like weeks later, you think back to it, you're like, oh, you know, that actually was a really good point, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, and and so I, I and you know again, I I know um, probably you know people have heard me make this joke before, but like. Whatever I hear, you know, like like whenever I see people say, oh, nobody ever changed their mind, like like it always amazes me because invariably when you actually dig into the bio of the person saying this, uh, you know, it's always some story like, oh, you were, you know, you grew up in a conservative evangelical household, and then you became an atheist when you were 17 because you were watching Richard Dawkins' videos, and you were just a regular MSNBC liberal until 2016. And you know, then uh, you've, you voted for Bernie and then you've joined the DSA and now you're like halfway to Maoism and you're going to tell me that nobody ever changes their mind. Uh, but, uh, but I, I think that, you know, I think, yeah, I certainly do have people, you know, tell me uh, that they, that they change their mind about things, you know, because of these things. But also I think that a lot of times, like when people do, it's not because of any one thing. It's because of a lot of things, you know, that, that are happening at the, at the same time and they have to be in the right place uh, at that moment to kind of be receptive to, uh, to, to being convinced and, um, and, you know, they might encounter a few different things along the way that, you know, that help kind of nudge them. But, uh, but I think that, um, since it is one of the things that we can, that we can do, right. You know, like at least as long as, you know, we're not going to save the world by arguing with people on the internet, but, uh, but because as long as we are doing things like having left magazines and left podcasts and, you know, and all those things, uh, I think it's one of the most useful things that we can do with those those platforms to kind of plant some of those seeds of doubt in people who might otherwise gravitate to the other side.
2: Hey, Ben, this is uh, Matt. Oh yeah, I had a question for you. So what do you think the argument kind of going sort of, the and I, and I did read your logic book and I, as I, I think I noted to you on Twitter, it's gonna take me my whole life to actually incorporate all of the different sort of arguments you make in there for, for logic, et cetera, to know them and name them. But one of my questions is, if you were on the opposite side arguing about the left, what are some arguments you would make that could could better our position? I know one of the reasons why we started this podcast was sort of when Bernie was in it, mm-hmm. he eventually lost, and we had some guests on. And, and some of the consensus on wh- why, why did Bernie lose, I think the consensus was it, it kind of lacked a coherent narrative. So I was wondering what are some things that you think could prop up the left better?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, something that like I've seen, uh, Corey Robin, uh, talk about a a good bit, uh, is that oftentimes we don't do a good enough job of, um, of grounding like the, you know, like we, we sort of talk as if, um, you know, there are a bunch of different values that like maybe are all important and, and they're all, you know, going to sort of lead to to what we want. And I think that's that's fine to a point. I think there might even be sort of an abstract sense in which that's true. Uh, but I think that it's it's maybe not super useful uh, politically, uh, you know, rhetorically. I, th- I think that it's it's better to be more focused. Uh, and I think that the Bernie campaign was at its best. It didn't do that much of it, but it did a little bit. And I was, I was excited when it did it. Uh, when it really started talking a lot more about freedom, uh, that the uh, the uh, since I think uh, Americans in particular are are likely to to really put a lot of emphasis on that, uh, and I think that if I think that if our case is um, okay, sure, freedom's nice, but like you know, have you heard about compassion and equality? Uh, I think that's going to be less effective. Uh, then, if we make the case, which actually I think also has the merit of, of being right, right <laughs> that uh, uh, that the most important kinds of freedom are actually really enhanced uh, by uh, by a left project. That uh, that the the kind of uh, the kind of freedom that matters most. Uh, you know, if you have like, oftentimes people talk about freedom in terms of freedom from coercion, but uh, but I think that that doesn't actually take us very far for one thing because um you know coercion like violating your your rights like take away taking away something you have a right to like talking that way just kind of pushes back the question because like what people with different political views are really arguing about is who has a right to what so like that doesn't really settle much and also uh there's an argument i wrote an article about this with uh, matt mcmanus uh last year called why everybody values freedom and, um, and one of the things not original to us, right. You know, but that we brought up is if you primarily think of freedom in terms of freedom from coercion, then, you know, that's like saying like, okay, if, uh, if you have two slaves and one of them is owned by somebody who beats them all the time, and one of them is owned by somebody who almost never beats them is the one who's almost never beaten freer. Right. I mean, they might be luckier, but they're not, they're not freer. Right. Cause, cause the, the more fundamental problem, uh isn't this particular violation of their rights uh that that happens, you know, uh it's the it's that relationship of domination. And, you know, I think that certainly in terms of like the kind of long-term radical socialist goals that would matter to me about um changing the structure of workplaces, I think there's there's a pretty obvious tie-in there. But even in terms of the kind of short-term goals that the Bernie campaign was about, I think that you can make a really compelling case there. Uh so um, there. So, for example, right I, uh, there's a book called "The Nordic Way of Everything." I'm not going to try to pronounce the author's name because it's a Finnish name that I know I'm going to mess up. But uh, uh, but it's by this Finnish journalist who who uh, got married to an American guy and she moved to America. And a lot of what the book's about is is her, her kind of being shocked by all of the effects of not having much of a welfare state on society, in terms of things like. The relationships between parents and children, husbands and wives, bosses and workers, being in her, her mind almost these like quasi-feudal relationships of dependency, that uh, that where like Finnish college kids might you know turn eighteen and and they're really living their own lives to a much greater extent, uh, a lot of American middle-class college kids uh, have to have these like. You know, like some, like they're parent, you know, they're like middle-class parents who like make their kids call them every day and they have the, and they can kind of get away with that because this, this relationship of extreme dependency, because they rely on them to pay for their, their tuition bills, which in that case, you know, might be a little overbearing, but not a big deal. I think, I think it becomes a much bigger, bigger deal in cases like, you know, imagine for example, you know, a gay college student who who might feel hesitant about coming out to his evangelical family because he's worried that they'll stop writing the checks, uh, or uh, people, there are people who stay in bad marriages because they don't want to lose their spousal health insurance. Uh, certainly there are people who stay in jobs they hate because they don't want to, they don't want to lose their their employer health insurance. So um, the effect of doing the kinds of things that Bernie was advocating of having um socialized health insurance at least uh and um and free and tuition free uh, public higher education is to cut some of the strings uh that are are involved in these relationships of dependency and, and make people more free to live their lives you know however they want to live them and again there was a little bit of that in the burning campaign i remember they did one ad in particular that that kind of played up this point but i think there, i think there definitely should have been a lot more of of that. And then I guess just to connect it to your, you know, connect it back to to how you started your original question. I think that, I think that this is one of the places where engagement with the right can actually really help us because, uh, because they are going to constantly talk up the freedom stuff. And it's easy to sort of roll your eyes or do memes about it, you know, you know, more freedom, you know, whatever. But I think that, a vastly more politically useful response is to sort of try to engage with that and try to think about, okay, why is freedom something we care about in the first place? And then what should that tell us about what kind of freedom is most important? And then if we can actually then pitch our politics differently because we're thinking about that, then I think we're uh, we're in a much better position. I
3: love that answer so much. Um, So Ben, I wanted to ask you about cancel culture and this this mm. sensationalized conversation around the uh, class reductionist allegation and the tensions between the identitarian left. I saw your debate with uh, Vosh, mm. And so I'm wondering, you know, you and Michael Brooks, I was rereading uh, the, the Cosmopolitan uh, Socialism article that you had written about the late and great Michael Brooks and some of his criticisms of the extremes of the left, uh, the woke left, the Robin DiAngelo left, and how that also gives the IDW on the right, uh, a lot of ammunition, right, um, to make these attacks. That was one of Michael's criticisms. And so I'm wondering, first, how big of a problem do you think the the, the hyper woke, identitarian left is, and what do you think a possible solution could be going forward to like integrate them or or make them happy in a sense, so that the class reductionist argument doesn't become so much of a conflict and cause more factioning and and you know divisiveness on the left.
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, so I think that, I, I mean, I, since, since you mentioned class reductionism, I, I guess I'll, I guess I'll just say like, uh, the, the boring, but I think true thing about this is that the, these debates, like, like the thing you mentioned with Vosh is, are often very frustrating because it's often a little unclear to me, uh, what's actually meant, uh, by, by, by class reductionism. I had an article about this for, um, Ryan, uh, Smith, or I think he's, uh, you know, embraced the uh, the the unusual last name. So I think now it's Michael Ryan Zickraff Smiths, uh, um, which is his actual name. Uh, his uh, his Substack publication, The Third Rail, called uh, "It's like the Search for the Mythical Class Reductionist," uh, where it's often really unclear what people mean because. Um, I think there are some like really kind of esoteric theoretical thing disagreements that you might be pointing to when you use this label, and we could argue about those, but I think the sting of the accusation comes from the implication that people are class reductions, that means they just don't care uh, about or are maybe even hostile to. Certainly, they're, they're not like, you know, avid supporters of other important things that aren't directly economic uh, like, um, you know, gay or trans rights or, uh, or, or concerns about racism or other things like that. Uh, and, and I think that that's, um, and then if that is what you mean, right. Then I always really like want you, like, I mean, I, 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 I want you, know, I want to see some names, right. You know, it's like, like who specifically are we talking about, right. Who, uh, who falls into this. Uh, and, and I think that, I think at least generally speaking, you know in my experience when people throw around that accusation uh and they do actually start naming names you know I'm very unpersuaded you know like like it's like because they tend to come up with people who are like wait a second you're kidding right like hey free doesn't care about racism it seems like he's been writing about it for like 50 years uh but um but then as far as as far as uh cancel culture and certain kinds of uh excesses of of left identitarianism uh which which I do think are slightly different issues but I think they're related uh the the reason I think they're slightly different issues is that I think that cancel culture which you know I realize is is a very imprecise term but I think that's I I think that's kind of what we're stuck with at this point like that's what everybody uses and I I'd, I'd usually much rather argue about the things themselves than argue about which labels we apply to them uh that it's um I think it's not unique to the left. I think it's 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 a I think it's a general disease of uh, of neoliberalism that impacts the entire political spectrum. Uh, what I mean by that is that we live in a society where people are incredibly atomized and isolated from each other, uh, and oftentimes feel most connected to other people online, or at least a certain kind of person does. Uh, and then. Um, Oftentimes, something people will say when they're actually minimizing the problem, they say, "Oh, there's no such thing as cancel culture." Whatever, is they'll say, "Oh, you're just talking about the internet," and there's some truth to that because I think that a big part of the problem is the bad incentives built into the the big tech platforms themselves. That they really reward our worst impulses because you get this this uh, the way that they're set up to make them as addictive as at all possible. Which you know, I think at this point you can find plenty of testimonials from people who work for those companies that that there is their goal. Um, really reward our worst impulses because they they really incentivize uh, denouncing first and asking questions later, you know, so you can get that instant validation from thousands of strangers, you know, cheering you on. Uh, and then I think the third element in that kind of witch's brew is the fact that at least in America and, you know, the stuff is by no means limited to America, but America is kind of the epicenter of it. Uh, most people work in non-unionized workplaces with at-will employment uh, meaning that uh, they can be fired without any particular due process or appeal, which which lends an extra kind of charge to the problem that um, because that that gives this 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 about um, you know people have to worry that uh, that they could get fired right over like somebody's interpretation of of something they they tweeted, and and you can find. And I think you can find examples of of people doing this sort of these very cancel-y kind of hair-trigger denunciations, calling for people to be fired, whatever, certainly from the right, right? You know, people who are trying to, like, get somebody fired for, you know, like a Starbucks barista said, fuck Trump. And, you know, so they'll, like, post the video on, on, on Twitter and try to get her fired. Uh, that's a real case. Uh, or, like you know, Elizabeth Warren supporters, you know, yelling at some graduate student and like trying to like tag his his university to, to get him fired. Uh, like, I think this stuff happens all across the spectrum, but, uh, I also think that to tie into what you said about left identitarianism, that, uh, it is, it is a particular problem or at least a problem that I particularly care about, uh, when it happens on the left, uh, one because I think it kind of interacts with more specific pathologies of the left, like what you're kind of pointing to, Ryan, and also, uh, and and then because with the the product of that interaction is this really toxic brew that's like very alienating to most of the people that we want to to win over, right? I mean, I, I think that if you, I think that if you showed most people who start out somewhat sympathetic to the left on on a policy level, right? I, th- I think if you just gave them five minutes of like scrolling through my Twitter feed on any given day They they want nothing to do with us ever again, you know, because you know, because they would, they would see so much of this sort of petty weird um, you know, games where people are like taking little snatches of what the other person says and putting it in the worst possible light and denouncing them, you know, as a, you know, if if you have the wrong position in one direction, you're a CIA agent. If you you know, if you have it in the the other direction, you know, uh, you you want to build a gulag, you know, whatever. Like, uh, so as far as what can be done about it, I guess, um, I guess there are really two questions. Like, one is like, what can be done about it on a larger societal level, and what can be done about it within the left and on a larger societal level. I actually think uh if the left stopped denying that the problem exists you know if, if, if we stop doing this knee-jerk oh there's no such thing as cancel culture which you know always reminds me of you know tony soprano yelling at meadow you know there is no such thing as the mafia uh but if we if we stopped uh if we stopped doing that right uh then i think we'd actually be well positioned to to sort of take back the issue because uh, the right, and when I say the right, I'm including the, you know, oh, I'm a classical liberal, you know, types. Um, like, they love to complain about cancel culture, but they don't, have, they don't, first of all, they don't have any plausible story about where it comes from. Uh, like, they just sort of, I think their theory is that it just sort of emerges just from leftism. Uh, and second, they certainly don't have a plausible solution to it, right? Like, they, they, it, the, all they really offer is just sort of eternally you know, scoring political points out of pointing out that it exists. Whereas I think the left's program might not, if implemented, completely eliminate the problem, but I think it would really mitigate it. Uh, because for example, uh you know, we could advocate that uh, that that these giant quasi-monopolistic tech companies like Twitter be taken under public ownership. And then so instead of having a profit incentive to find ways to make them as addictive as at all possible, we could make collective democratic decisions about what we wanted them to look like. And certainly we want to uh, rebuild the labor movement and end at-wheel employment, which would really take the sting out of a lot of this stuff because, you know, there wouldn't be that omnipresent uh, danger that, you know, somebody takes something the wrong way and they'll they'll rat you out to your boss uh, and and you'll be fired. Uh, and then, uh, and then I guess on the, on the level of the left, you know, like what we can do on the left. Uh, I think that, I think just one like really concrete thing that those of us who do take this problem seriously on the left, who do think that, um, you know, that the cancel culture is real, that there are many, Excesses and, and and embarrassments of of a certain kind of ultra-identitarian leftism. I think that the most important thing, maybe, is that we just watch ourselves to make sure that we don't just become the mere image of it. It's it's very easy, as uh, my friend Adam Proctor, hosts the uh, Dead Pundit Society, uh, puts it, uh, to sort of, uh, you know, there's this classic, uh, there's this essay from 2013 by Mark Fisher. Called Exiting the Vampire Castle, you know, about what we would now think of as cancel cultures that manifest on the left. And Adam's got a nice line about how it's it's really easy to tell you're just kind of a vampire hunter, but just sort of set up shop in the basement of the vampire's castle doing all the same things, you know, just just in reverse, right? You know, that uh that instead of how everybody who disagrees with you are racist now is a racist, now everybody who disagrees with you is is a you know, is a woke identitarian and, you know, and, and like, you're, you're just doing all the same stuff, right? Like that there's really no, there's really no difference between the way that people can form these little cliques and, um, and denounce, um, anybody for, you know, like who is perceived as deviating from that. Right. Uh, and, and the stuff that we're objecting to, uh, when, when ultra woke identitarians do it. So I, I think that, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is kind of a lame hippie-ish answer, but I, I think just sort of um, being like compassionate and giving each other a break, and not being too quick to like put a label on other people who we basically agree with politically, who we think get some of this stuff wrong. I think all that stuff can go a long way.
3: Lame hippie-ish answer is our mo for this show. So thank you, Ben. Yeah,
1: yeah, you're talking to the right people. Uh, and, and speaking of Ben, I. Maybe this is a good segue to get into uh, uh, our mutual uh, late great friend Michael Brooks and uh, the wonderful article you wrote on Jacobin on uh, cosmopolitan socialism, because I think uh, one of the strongest elements in in what Michael is advocating was this empathic, empathetic, compassionate, hippie response, which nevertheless had the kind of cutting intellectual, critical Mm kind of fused with the hippie right so we're talking about like yeah. analytical hippie or something like yeah. that maybe yeah. you want to unpack that a little bit as, sure as a possible way no. For the left.
0: yeah no absolutely uh so so yeah this is something um this is something that michael uh uh was very uh concerned with in fact i think it's something that i don't know i i i wonder actually if uh if he hadn't you know passed uh you know so unexpectedly this summer um if as this stuff went on you know i, I think maybe a certain you know portion of his audience you know I, th- I think wouldn't have more fully realized that that they didn't see eye to eye with, with him about all of this stuff um you know since uh which some of that you know might have happened already but he uh, you know but he does if you read against the web you know he does he does very explicitly talk about some of what we've we've been talking about uh, here uh, there uh in um certainly his his critique in there of uh of ideas about cultural appropriation uh his uh you know the way that he discusses you know there's a whole chapter where he gets into a lot uh like the next last chapter uh the ways that the the failures of the left have kind of paved the way uh for the the pitch of these idw guys he's criticizing in the book you know that we've given them so much to work with uh and if you watch um one of i think mate one of the very last uh, in-person speaking appearances uh, he he did before the pandemic uh, drove everybody inside was at Lafayette college. And if you, uh, and that's the whole thing's available on YouTube. And if if you watch that there, he's uh, you know, he lays a lot of the stuff we've been talking about out in a very um, yeah, very analytically rigorous, but also since it's Michael, you know, very funny way uh, and, and very compelling way in there. And, uh, and yeah, I think that, I mean, in many ways, uh, I don't know if this answer your question exactly, but I think, I think like one of the things that, that I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, after like, you know, a few weeks had passed since, um, you know, since he died and obviously the overwhelming first reaction is, is just the, is just the enormity of the, um, of the personal loss, you know, that this is, this is such a, um, you know, uh, I mean, the risk of being cheesy. You know, this is one of the most alive people, you know, that that I ever knew, you know, like um and, you know, and and, and is just like at the cusp of of a lot of the things that he was doing with his career and 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 um and and it's you know just so you know it's just such an enormous uh tragedy on that personal level. But then like I think that I think that as a little bit of time passed, you know, started thinking a lot more about um what a collective tragedy it is politically because I really don't know Anybody, um, you know, who uh, you know, who thinks I don't know anybody who is on the contemporary left, I think, who has quite the skill that he did as a uh, as a political communicator, uh, and I think that really comes out in that that Lafayette College speech, and especially in the uh, in the QS, like his kids, the speech who are. You know, asking him some pretty annoying kind of college Democrat questions that would be very easy for somebody with Michael's politics to sort of score points off of being dismissive of them. Uh, but he really doesn't do that, right? Like he really tries very hard to to engage with them and and uh, and to say something that's going to intersect with their worldview and they'll take seriously. And you know, it was also funny and charismatic because because he always was. Uh, and so, all of which is just to say that on these issues, I think that he. I think that he was maybe uniquely positioned to, to, to intervene in a good way on them uh, because he did always like, like, I think that like the characteristic Michael move was always um, sort of saying, okay, X is true, right? But, you know, here's why, which is also true. And it's also important. And we, we, we have to kind of wrestle with both of these things. And there's a way that I could imagine somebody doing that, that would seem sort of, uh, I don't know, indecisive or, you know, like not very compelling, but, uh, but in his, in his hands, it never was uh, like, like it always, it always felt like, Oh yeah, I really want to like, you know, like I, I want to wrestle with this with you. Right. You know, like, like this is you're you're laying this out in such an interesting way, right? That that I that I want to I want to be there with you. And uh and yeah, and I think he did have that, you know, I mean, look, speaking of somebody who who didn't share all these interests, you know, uh interests with him, right? You know, that like, um, you know, I'm uh you know, I'm an atheist and 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 I guess a uh you know materialist, whatever, right? You know, um, and so so Michael certainly had had some spiritual you know interests you know that that i didn't vibe with um you know that uh although you know I, I mean i think i i think i'd sort of i think the kind of the pattern you know in our in our relationship was was that i would sort of express my disagreement but never really go very deep into it because uh because it felt lame you know <laughs> like it's, it's sort of you know like i did you know it's, it's like oh yeah it's like he's this sort of like much cooler, older brother figure that you know that you that you don't want to, uh, you know. So it's like so there was there was some inbuilt I think uh, you know social pressure not to go too deep into into those issues. But you know whatever, I think despite that right, I think that the I think that maybe he had a really a perspective that was very valuable that maybe came easier to him because of those spiritual interests, uh, which is this this kind of willingness to to have this like really like frank unembarrassed emphasis on um on compassion uh and uh, and yeah i mean the line that that everybody quotes that you know that has has kind of become a meme since his passing you know like that sums that up really well right is the thing about being ruthless with systems and uh compassionate with people uh and and that that seems like something that that he um you know, I, I don't want to exaggerate this, you know, I mean, I think it'd be very, I think it's, I think it'd be very easy uh, in the aftermath of the, of the death of somebody as, as widely beloved as Michael to kind of turn him into a two dimensional plaster saint. And I have no interest in doing that. Right. If only cause you know, the person that I knew was so much more interesting than that. Right. So, so I mean, don't get me wrong. He could definitely be a hater. Uh, he uh, like, like, like when he was like texting me about people who annoyed him, you know, he could be very, very funny doing that. Uh, but uh but that said, I think that he um, I think that I think that that impulse in his personality was 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 tempered by by uh, by understanding that um, that everybody everybody is broken and 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 that we're we're all, you know, messing up all the time and we and, and we do, you know, need to uh, need to approach each other. Uh, with compassion and that there is this, there is this balance where you can, you know, you can do that um, without losing the, um, you know, without losing the the ruthlessness uh, towards, uh, towards, towards systems. And, you know, I mean, like, I, I think like, like he really, you know, somebody who, who he really admired, uh, you know, was, uh, was, was Cornel West who of course his uh, West's uh, particular, you know, Christian socialist perspective leads him to um to really taking some of the stuff to an extreme, but like an extreme that I think is uh that I I admire much more uh, than than the opposite extreme, certainly, right? Where where like West will go so far as to like you know he'll like honking uh, even when he's, he's talking about, I don't know, like, uh, like George W. Bush or somebody he'll be like our dear precious brother, George, you know, George W. Bush, uh, you know, and then like, he'll go on to say our dear precious brother, George W. Bush is a gangster and a war criminal, but, uh, you know, but like, he's got that, that first part in there at the beginning of the sentence. And even if I wouldn't personally go that far, I think that there's something really valuable about the, uh, the impulse, uh, to, um, you know, to, to sort of say, look, I mean, the reason the reason that we're leftists in the first place is that um, is that we understand that everything that's wrong with the world isn't a function of individuals having evil moral character. it's It's a function of structures and systems being bad. Uh, and so I think that I think that oftentimes that the the prolonged powerlessness of the left, uh, can lead to a situation, you know, this, this is, this is really what I harp on in, in the new book, uh, that, uh, where we, uh, we really, um, we tend to lose that, right? We tend to, uh, to, to reframe politics in terms of, uh, of individual morality, uh, because, uh, because, we we don't really have much hope oftentimes about actually winning, you know, in the larger collective sphere. Uh, So politics sort of becomes this matter of showcasing your individual moral commitment. Uh, And then, you know, you, it ends up becoming very easy to spend a lot of time interrogating other people's uh, individual moral commitment. And that, that's where a big part of the problem uh, the the problem comes in. Uh, And, and so, so I I think that, you know, I, I know this has been, um, Kind of a meandering answer, but I, I, I guess I would just say that the uh, I, I guess I guess I would, I would just say that the uh, that, like, it's good that that line has become such, such a meme because I, I think that's that's exactly what we need, you know, ruthlessness towards system and kindness towards people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Great response. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Um, as a kind of pivot, maybe we could uh, throw in a, a comment from YouTube as a question, Sure. Uh, because, no. You know, following uh michael's passing there there was such a overwhelming sense not only of you know the loss for the left globally but also the the need to step up right like michael was demonstrating a way of thinking and being on the left that was just so like you're saying alive but also deeply synthetic intellectually curious um Mm -hmm. profoundly grounded right um so it's not really like who else is doing it, doing it, but the question was like nobody can replace Michael, but who else is thinking like Michael? And like who was he pointing to, right? Like how do we emphasize a cosmopolitan socialism uh, as as a culture building project for the left? Mm-hmm. And, and can you think of anyone um, or particular projects that you find inspiring and in, in, in a kind of this similar spirit?
0: Yeah, good. Um... Yeah, I mean like I think that there are there are different uh aspects of of what what he brought to the table that I think I think other people to you know to varying extents uh you know do do embody parts of it certainly uh, and and I mean I think that the even though I think the way that that he could he could bring all that together and and uh and the way that he could um you know, that, that that he could just pitch it right as as a as a political communicator, you know, was, was fairly unique. But but, you know, he did spend the last couple of years, you know, since he started building his own show, um, you know, trying to bring together and showcase a lot of people who who he did think were 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 adding things that, that are that are important uh in that regard. And and I think that a lot of so I think that when it comes to certainly one of the big the biggest you know, like, like I think when he talked about cosmopolitan socialism, you know, he he really meant a couple things, right? so so part of which is just uh, internationalism uh, and and part of which is uh, is this ideal of of kind of how we can all, you know, live together uh, in um, you know, in a way that we might need socialism to uh, to completely you know completely embody right you know but like but like really like instead of sort of worrying about policing like boundary lines and uh and you know what b- bits of culture belong to who or whatever that 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 uh that you know synchronicity you know like like syncretic uh practices and and sort of doing like kind of freedom you and know, taking what's good you know from from everything uh you know, is a good thing, should be valorized, you know, uh, as an ideal and, and that a lot of what we've been talking about earlier about the failures of the left, you know, he really saw as undermining that. So, I mean, I think that, I think that certainly in terms of, uh, well, I, I guess I'll just, I'll just say this much, right. I, I think that, I think that, that in, at least in terms of the element of that, of sort of correcting the America centrism, uh, of, uh, of the American left, uh, and, and really, uh, having more to say about, about global struggles and, 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 and taking, uh, inspiration from those and, and, and like engaging with those issues more seriously. Uh, I think that, uh, two people who are, are both really good, uh, you know, really good for that, who, um, you know, who were both introduced to me by, by Michael show, you know, uh, who, uh, you know, who I just had on, uh, the, uh, the, uh you know mine a couple days ago were uh Gene bajalan and and Daniel Bessner uh, I think I think they're both really valuable in that regard uh I think um I think nandovila is is somebody who uh who is um you know who who I think has a lot of interesting things to say about about those global issues and also I think um I think I think embodies uh some of the um uh you know i think i think some of what of what michael did as far as um you know as, as far as providing an image of the left that's that's um that's that's you know funny and open and 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 that like you know you like part like part of what was part of what was so good about michael was just that like it always it never seemed like um you know like like you never got the sort of like wagging finger that you can always see in the background in certain presentations of left politics it was always a version of the left that you you wanted to hang out with uh and and i think that i think that i think that nando you know kind of kind of embodies uh you know embodies some of that and um yeah i guess that, i guess that's three names i'll just, i'll just i'll just leave it there and obviously if if uh, if anybody's listening to this and i didn't mention you it's it's because it's probably because i hate you That's 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 the only reason that somebody would have made it. So somebody wouldn't have made it into that list of three people.
2: Well, thanks, man. I think you definitely addressed my question on sort of integral theory and spirituality and the role that could play, and maybe creating a a better narrative for, for the left. One of my questions, I, I guess, with um, sort of, you know, not reading much Marx and, and socialism, was, do you, how do you in, interpret or incorporate sort of a, a healthy, competitive, open market economy, and also combining that with your vision of socialism?
0: Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So. So socialism and uh, and like the the virtues of a market economy the things that we think that markets that markets do well that's is that the question kind of as you see yeah it? Yeah. Okay. yeah okay yeah right I think that's a really good starting place um, since I think that uh, I think that if if you want to think hard about like what kind of society we ultimately want uh, then you you want to both sort of say Okay, like what are all the reasons that we quite rightly hate capitalism? And then um, and then what are the things about uh about capitalist society, you know, as it exists now that that we wouldn't want to lose, that would be really bad to lose. Uh and and how can we uh and then how can we get as much of the the good stuff uh as possible uh with without the um you know, without the part that makes it capitalism, you know, the uh and and I, and I I do really emphasize as possible uh because I think oftentimes it's it's really tempting and this is something I see a lot on the socialist left to kind of uh, to sort of help ourselves to the assumption that we can just kind of work backwards from here's all the stuff that we don't like and we and then when we have socialism that'll get rid of all of those things that we don't like and uh and and it won't it won't come with any other problems and we just sort of black box the details that um that we we don't feel like um you know as long as as you're just kind of saying okay uh we we won't have you know we won't have markets we'll have you don't really like it's almost like you don't really complete the sentence. Right. Or, or if you do, you'll just sort of use phrases like planning or whatever that don't that that don't really clarify very much at all about what you have in mind. Uh, and I think this is actually this this kind of goes back to something Ryan was asked about earlier about about what could, we can sort of clarify for ourselves and, and our project by engaging with the right. Uh, because I think that oftentimes ideologically unsympathetic critics you know uh, conservative or libertarian uh, or you know neoliberal critics uh even though obviously I hate their answers you know they are asking some of the right questions about this stuff and we and we do and we do have to take those questions seriously so um so when we think about like, the 20th century attempts at having completely non-capitalist economies and in, in countries like the Soviet union or, or Mao's China, uh, then, uh, obviously those were not smashing successes. Uh, they did some things well. Uh, they, they were very good. Like, uh, like my friend, um, uh, Baskar the editor of Jacobin who I'm actually, uh, co-writing a book about this right now with him and with, uh, Mike Beggs, who's a, um, australian economist and um and so but in bosco's first book the Socialist manifesto which i'd really recommend he um uh he has this analogy it might not be original to him i don't know but uh you know but that like the soviet style planned economies were basically all thumbs and no fingers meaning that uh when it came to things like building tons and tons and tons of tractors or tons and tons and tons of tanks very quickly they were great at that right like so so they did accomplish some some impressive things as far as that kind of rapid industrial development. And you know thank God for it, because like maybe the Nazis would have won World War II if they hadn't. But uh, when it came to the sort of more um, fine-grained task of coordinating production with uh, consumer preferences, uh, which, which is what those kinds of right-wing libertarian critics will call the calculation problem, uh, they sucked at that right? Like that, that was the no fingers part, right? If the all thumbs and no fingers Uh, and it's easy for that to sort of seem like, okay, well, who really, you know, like it's, it's easy to adopt kind of a posture as a leftist where you, where you really dismiss the importance of that, right? Where you say like, whatever, right? So, all right, you know, maybe we won't have 200 kinds of toothpaste, you know, big deal, right? You know, who cares? Uh, But I think that that really understates how much of a problem this was because, For one thing, if you think about the way that the Soviet Union, for example, ended, you know, this is, you know, this is supposed to be a socialist society. It's supposed to be something that that exists on, you know, for the benefit of uh, the working class majority. And that working class majority didn't lift a finger to defend that system when it was ending. Uh, In fact, most people at the time probably welcomed it. I think, you know, maybe if you uh, did an opinion poll five years later, they'd want it back because the kind of, you know, kleptocratic gangster capitalism that replaced it was so bad. But at the time, you know, they they, they, they welcomed uh, it leaving. And why did they welcome it? Well, some of it's because the political authoritarianism, of course, nobody likes, you know, um, you know uh, that kind of police state. But I don't think that's all of it. I think that a big part of it uh, is that that kind of frustration that when that, that disenfranchisement of Soviet citizens qua consumers, I think, was really a massive source of disillusionment with the system that, you know, that you just sort of, you know, your, your pockets might be full of rubles that, that you can't really spend on anything, you know, because when you go to the grocery store, you just sort of have to hope that uh, that what you want is there, you know, that you won't have either empty shelves or shelves bursting with with, with stuff that you don't want. Uh, and and I think that that's something that was very deeply resented by by citizens of those societies, and and that they, uh, and and that was one of the main reasons uh, for for lack of public support for those systems. And sometimes we 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 think about this in term, in this sort of it's almost like we're thinking in slogans uh, more than in like concrete ideas. And so sometimes people say, "Oh well, the problem is that uh, that wasn't the problem, wasn't with the economic planning. The problem was that uh, that they didn't go far enough in the direction of you know total communism, that there were still, you know, people were still paid in rubles, et etc. But that always frankly reminds me a little bit of when libertarians say that, okay, sure, capitalism as exists might be awful, but if we had really free markets, then all these problems would disappear, say, so, well, I, I want to. I want some evidence there, right? Like, like, like I, I, I don't want to just accept that on faith. Uh, and sometimes people will say, "Oh, wasn't." Uh, but then I think it's really useful to sort of say, "Okay, this might not be what you have in mind, but let's let's do the thought experiment and try to add some democracy to it and see if it would solve the problem." So. Uh, if you, you you can imagine a version of the Soviet Union where you had free speech and free press and real multi-party elections, you kind of layered that onto the structure of the Soviet economy so that uh, whatever party won a majority in the parliamentary elections that year got to appoint the head of the Soviet planning office, Goshplan, but otherwise the system was the same. Uh, and would those problems have been avoided? I don't think so. Right? I think that the worst horrors of that system would have been avoided. I don't think you would have gotten... You know the ukrainian famine uh in the 30s or or the great leap forward in china if stalin or mao had had to worry about being re-elected uh that's true but i don't think that the sort of day-to-day frustrations that soviet citizens faced at the grocery store would have been uh alleviated if the if the political leadership behind the planning uh was different and you know you can tell stories where we have like really, really radical direct democracy, but I'm also not super compelled by that if one th- for if nothing else. For I think there are some technical problems, but also, I think that um I think that that misses some of why socialism is desirable in the first place. Uh, you know, I've spent enough hours of my life in faculty meetings that I'm never getting back to to know that um, to have a very keenly honed sense that most human beings uh, would hate the idea. Of stuff having to spend their lives uh, in uh, in meetings, you know, to to do all of this, you know, radically, directly, democratic, you know, planning for various things. Uh, that that sounds awful, right? Like like what I want is, you know, I think ideally one of the best things about socialism is that we could all have much more free time to spend on whatever we wanted to spend our lives on, uh, in, and instead of doing like one of the most annoying things known to man, which is like sitting in meetings debating exactly how something is going to work. Uh, so, uh, so I, I, think that it's possible that we could get a totally marketless version of socialism at some point in the future, maybe because like AI technology got so good that we could outsource a lot of the stuff that would happen in these planning meetings to that. And, and, and I'm not being flippant. I don't rule that out at all, right? That could happen eventually. Uh, but as far as what could happen right now, uh, what, what Bhaskar and Mike Beggs and I advocate in the new book is what we call a uh, full democratic socialism, uh, meaning that uh, that we would we go beyond social democracy and and not have a separate capitalist class anymore uh, but uh, but we we do think that there would still have to be at this stage right some 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 markets and buying and selling uh, and so i think that i think that what you could do is certainly you could have a greatly expanded public sector there's lots of evidence under capitalism we could have that without economic disaster there there you know lots of countries in the world that have state owned oil industries and state owned healthcare systems and things like that and it all works great uh but as, but if you do need for those consumer coordination problems right if you do still need a market sector it could at least be a market sector of worker owned firms uh and and I don't I don't I, I guess I'll just wrap up on the on, on this point right cuz I know it's already been a long answer uh but I, I don't want to do what I'm accusing other people of doing at the beginning of the answer, which is just assuming, oh yeah, uh, we'll have all the good things and none of the bad things trust us. You know, <laughs> like, cause I, I think that, I think that being real about this, I think that, I think that he, this kind of socialism, um, you know, which uh, I mean, I don't know, sometimes called market socialism. I think that's not necessarily, I think that's a little misleading because you know, there would be markets, but there would there'd be more planning than there is now. Certainly. Uh, but this kind of like mixed time kind of a socialism, this full democratic socialist vision, you know, there's still, um, I don't think we can help ourselves to the assumption that this, that, that like all of the problems that beset capitalism, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't exist here. I think that you would still have some of those because some of them, are, some of those problems are a function of the division of society into workers and capitalists, which would be ended by workers control the means of production. But some of them are just functions of the way markets work in any society, and some of those would still persist. And I think we have to be real about that. Uh, and so you, you'd still need things like, um, you know, a, a strong regulatory state. Uh, and and then sometimes, like I think a, a, a very perceptive kind of critic will say, well, hold on, right? If if you think that there are at least some of the problems of capitalism can be solved, you know, by this kind of state intervention, well, why, why can't we just do that under capitalism, right? Why Why, why do we need this? Uh, and I think the best answer to that is just to say, yeah, look, you know, you would, would store regulation for some of the things that we think of as like social democracy right now, but I'm much more confident in the ability of of the political process to 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 leave to to good, you know, regulatory interventions and things like this if that political process doesn't involve participation by people like Jeff Bezos and the Walton family.
1: Yeah, so I don't think we have too much more time, but um, if we could squeeze in one question to kind of a follow up sure. transitional question. Um, on the subject of worker cooperatives, I think uh, uh. you know we're very interested in you know, Richard Wolf has been popularizing this very mm. much. Um, yeah, uh, the, the example of, of Mondragon comes up quite a bit. And the, the retort is always, the, the the argument against this is always that, well, Mondragon is an interesting case study, but it hasn't really taken on and hasn't really scaled. Um, mm-hmm. Sure, it's interesting, but this is not a viable path that could be scaled in terms of a new labor consciousness or a new kind of democratic yeah. shift in work but how, how do we respond to that and what what are the kind of the limits or the inhibitions in terms of um what mm-hmm. is restraining something like that from taking off right now is it just too early um
0: well it's not i mean it's not too early because because i think that that to give the critics their due uh, you know there have been you know there have been worker cooperatives for a very long time like uh you know you you, you can find Karl Marx. uh you know, talking about, you know, how excited it is that there are some cooperatively owned factories, you know, uh, in like the 1850s. Uh, so, so it's, it, it's, it like, whatever the problem is, it can't just be that like we, we need some more time for, for these to develop and, and take up a bigger chunk of the economy. Cause I think the evidence is in that like, like what makes Mondragon such an exciting case, uh, does have to do as you say with scale, uh, that it's, um, that it's it's easy to say, okay, hey, here's like, you know, a successful, you know, cooperative small business that has ten worker owners in it, uh, but somebody might be skeptical that, you know, like if we're talking about having like the entire private sector be worker owned, uh, they might be skeptical about that. And then I think it's very useful to say, hey, here's Mondragon that has eighty thousand members, and is is one of the biggest employers in its region of Spain. Uh, but that said. I think there is a sense in which it's a fluke. The sense in which it's a fluke is that I think the evidence is in from like you know, good like one hundred and fifty years or so of of uh, of practice that it's never ever going to happen that uh, these are just going to sort of organically grow to like outcompete regular capitalist businesses and and just take over the economy that way, right that 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 won't and can't happen uh, that in every capitalist economy, uh, they are a tiny, tiny portion of of the overall economy. The question, I think, the more interesting question is why is that, and then what is what does that tell us about strategy going forward? And I think the answer to the uh, to the why is that question uh, is that it's not because once they get going, they're less successful than than other kinds of businesses. If you look at the studies that have been done on this, the empirical literature, it seems to be the case that uh, once they get going. You know, on average, uh, you know, look, most businesses of any kind, of course, you know, fail. But, uh, you know, like that's but on average, worker cooperatives are no less likely to succeed uh, than than any other kind of business. Uh, So it's not that they have a higher death rate than regular capitalist hierarchical uh, companies. It's that uh, they have a much lower birth rate. Like that seems to be the problem. And you say, okay, why do they have such a lower birth rate? And I think that the main reason is just um, that the uh, the distribution of of starter capital is is wildly unequal. Uh, it's it's much easier to attract investors if you could reward that initial investment with ongoing ownership shares uh, of of the company, which obviously would completely defeat the point uh, for for a worker co-op. And then also uh, that you that uh that the the risk uh the risk element, right? You know, that that uh if that if somebody uh said, you know, like if, if somebody says says to you tomorrow, hey, uh why don't you, you know, why don't you quit your job and, and and go in on this this cooperative you know business venture with me, uh first of all, if there are any kind of substantial capital costs at all, right? Which which there are Really, the more you start thinking about it for for all kinds of things, right? You don't have to be, you don't have to be doing uh, heavy industry, capital, capital costs to be enormous. Uh, I mean, even if you want to, you know, you're a huge always sunny fan, and you want to like start up your own Irish pub, uh, you know, then then like you actually start thinking about uh, the the costs uh, of of that, of of renting the space and getting the liquor license, and 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 you know, and, and buying all the booze and all that stuff, right? Uh, then actually, your initial business costs are are pretty enormous, um, and um, and so um, and if even if you do get you know some sort of small business loan, right, which you might not get in the first place because uh, the uh, <laughs> because uh, there's. Um, because it's uh you know like like you just might not be a good candidate for for such a loan because because you you don't have many financial resources to start with, but even if you do get it uh then you'll very rationally be worried that hold on, but if this fails, which frankly it probably will because most new businesses do uh then we're on the hook for this uh and 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 we're really gonna be in trouble. okay, so uh so so real briefly um I you know. I don't want to, like, pretend that 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 I can I can uh, that that I can like, uh, put all of the very good concerns that somebody might have about this to bed in the next three minutes. Uh, but I also don't want to just do what I, I don't like it when when socialists do and just sort of black box all the hard questions. So I I think that the I think that the solution, uh, what Boscar talks about in the Socialist Manifesto, what uh, if you read David Schweikart has a really good book uh, called uh, After Capitalism. Uh, by the way, if you buy any of these books, you should buy them from uh, from, from Red Emma's because that's a uh, that's a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore. You can order books from online, uh, but uh, what what they talk about is that uh, is that if we uh, nationalize the banks, uh, then uh, then we can have publicly owned banks that uh, that give um, that would the main source of, of financing for new cooperatives would be. Uh, would be grants uh, for capital goods, uh, crucially not loans, but grants, uh, so that you would be paying the equivalent of interest on a loan, uh, but not the uh, but not the principal. Uh, and and that so essentially, what you would have is you you would get rid of this problem about um, about risk uh, and 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 starter capital by essentially having uh, worker cooperatives, renting the actual physical means of production uh, from, from the state. Uh, and, and I, and I guess, okay, I guess the very last thing I'd say about this is just this, that I think that, I think that there's a certain kind of socialists who is like rightly excited about completely getting rid of all the many ills of capitalism uh, that, you know, which obviously I want them to be excited about uh, who, who might look at this and be kind of underwhelmed because, because uh, in a way, Right, Like we're just mixing and matching different elements that that have that have already existed uh, in in the real world. and it might not quite scratch the itch that some people have for a for a truly radical break. Uh, and if and if you are watching this and you are thinking that, i would I, I just urge you to take a step back and think, okay, but what we would be talking about here, right, with with this kind of full democratic socialism, is the first human society that's existed since the Neolithic Revolution that wasn't divided into a ruling class and a subservient labor force um, as, uh, you know, as Joe Biden once said in a very different context, that's a big fucking deal.
1: (laughs) That's a good way to end it. Uh, Well, thank you, Ben. It's been it's been wonderful, uh, very illuminative. And you have a, a book list for us, basically, that's accrued now in the chat. So appreciate your time. Uh, folks who want to tune in to Ben, uh, you've got a show on Mondays, mm-hmm. right? Mondays at yep. five PM, I think, uh, or... seven thirty. Seven thirty. Okay.
0: Yep. Great. Yeah. Monday. Monday, seven thirty Eastern Standard Time. So, uh, so yeah, the one uh, the one coming up this Monday uh, is with um, uh, with Matt McManus about some some articles that he's written for Jacobin about the relationship between Marxism and philosophical liberalism. Uh, and then um, Matthew Sitman, uh, who is the co-host of the Know Your Enemy podcast, and who also uh, wrote a uh, really good essay for Dissent about uh, leftism and country music. Uh, so I'm going to bring David Griscombe on to interview oh, him about that. Say, yeah.
1: David yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great, great. Thank you, Ben. Looking right. forward to that. Thanks so and, much, guys. Uh, yep. Take Thank care. you, Ben. All right. Bye. Okay, I think uh, we're still live, folks. So what we're going to do now, uh, if that is okay, is just do a little bit of uh, I think uh, Matt had to run, too. But um, yeah, we could do a little bit of uh, reflection post interview conversation, take some more questions from the live stream. Uh, We are streaming across a couple of different platforms. So I just want to thank everyone who's been on Twitch uh, posting some comments there. Let's see if we could just switch over here and get a better view. One second. Yes. Oh, you know what? That's not working. (laughs) Sorry, one second, folks. Let me get rid of Matt's video feed. Switch over here. Cool and then we're gonna pop over to the chat so ryan (laughs) um how was it hey jeremy (laughs) (laughs) how's it going
3: you know yeah i he's really he's really my kind of guy you know like in terms of his style and i really appreciate his kind of like anti-dogmatic ideologue Mm -hmm, approach mm -hmm. and like really other um arguments uh you know from the other side of the aisle very seriously not shying away from debates not shying away from engaging with the tough questions and not you know black boxing them or ignoring them sure. and um i thought i what my main takeaway my favorite part of the conversation was what he said about michael brooks about grappling with difficult uh, tensions you know paradoxically and um, not coming across as being wish-washy or waffling on the fence, but doing so in a very integrally inspired way that draws other people uh, in to participate in that kind of grappling with difficult value tensions or contradictions or paradoxes. And that's something I'm always, I always struggle with myself because I think a lot of people do see me as a waffler and as like a spineless, you know, piece of seaweed, but Michael was able to do it in a way where that was really, um, inspiring other people, you know, and that's not something that really is encouraged or valorized in today's society. It's a very black and white and one-sided. And so, yeah, I, I, his, his appreciation of Michael Brooks, I think was very telling about the kind of person character that he is.
1: Yes, I I agree. I agree. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciated the thoroughness of his answers just in terms of there's really no direct way to answer a question like well how do we scale worker cooperatives because there's so many contextual layers there historical economic legal um so you know that the answer tends to be kind of murky and complex and it does tend to require a systemic sort of thinking to really kind of give a something that is constructive and it may sound like he was saying like this may not sound very exciting but you know, in terms of actual lev- leverage of power, right? in terms of actual practical solutions that would make a difference over the long term, I think these are the kinds of answers that we, we need to, if not get excited about, then at least work on implementing and being literate about, etc. Um, I also really appreciated his emphasis on just having a historical literacy of what's been going on in the twentieth century in terms of worker cooperatives and um, pointing the way towards Daniel yes. Bessner and and some of these folks um, or Sankara's book on socialism, which I still haven't read, admittedly, um, the Socialist Manifesto. I definitely want to read that. So, yeah, no, I think it was a rich conversation, and um, I mean, like you're like you're saying, uh, his 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 appreciation for for Michael's cosmopolitan socialism. You know, he. He um, really hit on where it mattered, which is in the heart and compassion in actually helping people, you know, in terms of as he wrote in the article, like these these are not intellectual or abstract concerns. This is very real grounded concerns with making sure people are fed, making sure they have a home, make sure they have decent health care when they're sick. You know, uh, and that is the ultimate concern is, you know, is it, the material wellness of other human beings. Right. And even when it comes to this, I mean, right. it was be ruthless against systems, be kind to people. Uh, that's ultimately what we need to, to focus on. Because whenever we don't do that, when people are always means to ends, uh, a bill that's going to you know screw over a certain population, but it's sort of going to help us move in this direction, we really have to consider the human factor a lot more than we do. And obviously, with our current economic system, it's very difficult to do that. It's, it's It tends to abstract, right? Uh, it tends to dehumanize. So... Yeah, I mean, it's very it, it's radically simple when we get down to like what the principles and values of the left are. And I liked his answer too about uh, towards the beginning in terms of, you know, what could the uh, democratic socialist movement during the Bernie campaign have done better? And I mm. think the emphasis on freedom is mm. a re- really interesting pivot because that tends to be the more conservative argument that I want to be free to do X or, or X or Y and you know he i think ben was really arguing well we really needed to to adopt that you know the the left needs to adapt freedom and the principle of freedom in the same way like michael was always talking about well the left needs spirituality you know we we can't just give it up to the intellectual dark web or give it up to the conservatives right so yeah great great uh, great responses in general
3: um yeah well just a couple thoughts on thoughts on that jeremy i think that um the freedom thing is interesting, too, because, you know, you're you're taking a, a value, a very core value and core identity of your opponent, right, and remixing it in a way that's very relevant um, for what you're trying to promote. I mean, that's the reason why I'm, I am concerned myself, you know, left and progressive is because it's really about freedom. I want more freedom to do this kind of stuff, and I don't have to worry about all the little things like how I'm going to get health care for the year or how I'm going to pay all the bills If that's if that's not at the front of my mind. I, it frees me up to pursue, you know, higher pursuits or things that are more authentic to me and I can contribute value to the world in my own way. Um, and I think what I, what I think needs to happen next is a kind of examination of values that are not current, explicitly, um, you know, embraced by the left and remixing them in a creative way, right? What is freedom? What is a 21st century understanding of freedom, right? What is a holistic freedom? Does that include material, economic, spiritual, emotional, psychological freedom? right? Interior freedoms, exterior freedoms, negative freedoms, positive freedoms. Um, and just having, just having a more thorough view of that, or even something like personal responsibility, right? Isn't a worker co-op where you're also the owner of the means of production you have to bear that risk yourself. Doesn't that demand a radical upgrade in personal responsibility as a member now owner of that business, right? So there, I think there's a lot of ways we can make that marriage happen. And one thing I wanted to ask, uh, Mr. Burgess was about, um, it sounded like when he was talking about, and he mentioned this in the Cosmopolitan Socialism article that some of his disagreements with Michael Brooks about spirituality and, and you know, he was saying that he's a uh, atheist and materialist. So it sounded like he had personal disagreements with Michael Brooks, but I wanted to ask him if he also had, um, what should I say? larger ideological disagreements in terms of how that fits into the left like does he does he have a fear that if the left were really to more explicitly embrace interior issues of value purpose meaning making and consciousness and spirituality if that would actually you know turn off voters or alienate people with more material concerns i think michael brooks had a very clever way of doing it where he married the two very very consciously right where um the spiritual, the spiritual values are rooted in the material concerns or providing material concerns for people who are suffering. And I think there is a kind of danger of the, if you go too far down the kind of Marion Williamson path, um, where it looks kind of out of touch. I think that's kind of the danger. And I wonder if he had that same concern. I, I would love to ask him another time.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I wonder about that too, but I also kind of wondered the flip side, if, you know, I'm not really worried about the left going to Marianne Williamson, but I'm more concerned about the mediational element of this, which is to actually construct Mm. or to build a working class coalition or a left coalition where we have, you know, the spiritual left who tends to be... The, the 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 uh marion williamson types uh the burning man consciousness culture types who unfortunately are kind of uh, succumbing to QAnon conspiracy theories at the moment as we've been talking about so you know right. we have different coalitions who i think would be uh, tremendous a tremendous aid to building a, a a left coalition for for the 21st century but um so i'm more concerned about how we how we don't alienate each other from each other right like the more secular oriented folks uh, would they be very w- how comfortable would they be with the Marion Williamsons you know and is mm-hmm. there are there ways to articulate common ground I think you know that mediational space of well, what do we really all what are we all con- concerned in and what do we all care about and I do think it, it does come down to you know, material concerns now there's different ways they might read that they might read that in a more spiritual sense and say well you know we want an enlightened compassionate bodhisattvic society or we have some kind of energetic thing about this and we all do group meditations before we go go into some kind of activist um event uh but the the material concerns in terms of their embodiment is is like the same like Feed people, help people, make sure people aren't, you know, um, homeless and out on the street. Create a better society. Yes, there's practical ways to do this. That we'll need the more economic-oriented leftists to be able to, um, to understand and to comment on and put forward solutions like the the banking solution that Ben was was talking about with worker cooperatives. But we need like I think we really need mediational translators that you've been emphasizing that are able to like to to take that and approach. The spiritual leftist with, and vice versa, right? Like, look, we all have the same concerns, or just having different elements of it. So, I do think it requires people who have that fluidity of mind, like Michael Brooks had, um, to be able to, to to actually build a left that isn't hyper fragmented. Um, and yeah, so so just just kind of riffing on what you're you're talking about here. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see, we have a question from. Can you clarify? Marianne Williamson. Not sure what you mean by that, uh head hunch. But just in terms of Marianne Williamson, her spirituality, right? Like she's California consciousness culture. She writes a lot of books about spirituality. She ran for president obviously in Democratic primary. So she's involved in politics. I think she ran for or was a congresswoman in California for
3: she a number ran of for years. A last right. Last. Right. I, right. Okay, right. Yeah.
1: So so we have, you know, a kind of voting block of maybe boomer-aged, uh, literal hippie generation, spiritual folks, and they're they're a very big economic block. Like I'm, we're in the consciousness culture and in the integral community, and they do take up you know a significant chunk of the people that we meet in a lot of these events. Um, and so we know they're a voting block as well. So it was kind of interesting to see. Marian Williamson is somebody who is kind of representing that politically maybe in the same way that the conservative religious right was kind of putting forward their own political block but much more successfully um so the question is you know can we can we bring forward the spiritual counterculture as a political block as well and actually get them engaged and, and etc so yeah I don't know if that helps clarify uh head haunch, but good question let's see and Ron, you can see the comments here, right? Like we got to – you can see the stream mm-hmm. a little bit. Good. Um,
3: someone mentioned Caleb Malpin. Caleb Malpin. I'm not yeah, familiar. I, 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 I am. I'm a little fam- I haven't read his books, but I saw him on debates, and it seems it seems like an interesting. Uh, I, I'd like to check his stuff out more. So thanks for the uh the tip. Mhm. Mm-hmm. He, he's yeah, an advocate for. See our own form of, like, American socialism, and he has ideas of what that looks like and what industries to nationalize and so forth.
1: Interesting. Yeah, there's an earlier comment. Let me see if I could put that up separately so folks can see that and fix the... uh... Yeah, that's like a separate little pop-up here. Here we go. Yeah, okay. So, constructive patriotism from a 21st century socialist perspective. Oh, they're having a web conference today at... 4 p.m cool yeah well maybe we'll check that out thank you let's see if there's any other interesting comments that we missed over the the stream there was a couple of really good ones um this one i thought was interesting from earlier um just about the 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 element of imperialism that maybe like someone like daniel bestner would be more suited or or more um uh, just literate about uh, in terms of how that affected the USSR, but you know, Ben's solution of a shorter term limits for Stalin would have only hastened the fall of the USSR, as imperialist powers always swarm on anti-imperialist countries when there is a transition of leadership. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really have too much to comment on there, but I do think that's certainly an element to consider in terms of the history of the USSR and its need to compete in an imperialist manner. You know with united states um we've been talking a lot about economics and social systems but there was also this imperialist uh militaristic reality of course that the history channel loves to focus on uh, in a very one-sided way so uh, certainly an aspect that needs to be commented on i don't know if you have any thoughts ryan about that
3: oh yeah um I, i'm Very, I need to do my homework on that before I say anything. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. I feel the same way, honestly. So, uh,
3: I'd be talking out of my ass if I was making some of that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, Let's see if there's any other ones. Uh, You know, I like Christian from earlier. Uh, We may have to prepare and develop ourselves for a decentralized world and decentralized structures. I definitely think that is certainly the way things hopefully will be going like i I feel like there we haven't really connected the dots entirely but we have things like worker cooperatives like mondragon as a a case study we have cooperatives and platform cooperatives in general which have been adopted semi universally in terms of you know i i I hear about them in all sorts of cities and especially in the tech world on a smaller level or smaller scale um we have peer-to-peer currencies there's a lot of hype around that so i like I get the sense that, you know, digital culture wants things to go in this decentralized direction. And, you know, we've been talking about when it term- when it comes to, like, um, our conversation with Matt Segal, uh, the sort of Alexander Dugan direction of this sort of ethno-nationalist retreat from the global sphere. Um, so we have a kind of conservative take on decentralization, and then we also have a kind of internationalist take on it, which is much more cooperative. Uh, you know, Michael Brooks, in in the conversation I had with him a year or two ago on uh, mutations, before he called it cosmopolitan socialism, he was saying we need some kind of planetary meshwork, um, and I know there's internationalist socialism going on right now. So there's there's pushes for this. Um, so I definitely think there's this is the direction things are going, but it's just so incipient, and I think it requires the kind of boring nitty gritty answers that like Ben was talking about. Like, well, maybe there's there's a, there's a way to have worker owned or decentralized banking systems first, or um, uh, uh, some kind of banking innovations first to help that kind of startup capital. It, we might find some of the solutions in that direction, so maybe. <laughs> let's see if there's any others here Yep, yeah, rest in power michael brooks thanks folks okay yeah oh of course uh brent was on earlier when we were talking about cancel culture at the beginning and he was mentioning uh yeah brett weinstein trying to get Matt Leck fired as a perfect example of of uh on the on on in terms of our spheres like this is happening on the idw as well the idw does is not afraid to use cancel culture for their own or weaponize it for their own devices as well (laughs) my buddy uh nick says uh he misses my uh my beard thanks (laughs) i did shave i did shave wow this was like more than one question yes cleaned up i cleaned up let's see few more comments uh this one from Christian clarifying this I do like socialism and centralized power as a stopgap but there is a future where the individual has to develop and be able to make good transactions yeah I mean A stopgap is a good way to put it. We want a social safety net. We want some basic implementation of of socialistic programs. Um, You know, Ben mentioned Nordic countries, and I think we we even were talking about this as well with with Thomas Bjorkman, that the concept of bildung and self-realization is something that is inherently both individual and socialistic, even in terms of its implementation in Nordic countries. Um, Bjorkman was talking about how um you know these bildung retreat centers realization centers were socialized to some degree they were subsidized by the government and for students they were funded in part by unions on occasion so you know the socialistic elements of a society where the individual is 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 actualized and self-realized is contingent as well on the collective and matt said this really well matt seagal um ryan do you remember how he put it um the individual is a collective act, right? To become an individual is something collective uh, and vice versa.
3: He was talking about Whitehead's um, philosophy of concrescence in his process philosophy and about how, in that view, the individual is a consummation or or a um, product of the collective, right? So it's not this kind of classical, liberal, Cartesian idea that we start from the individual and then get to the collective, but actually the individual is a product and entangled with Deeper uh, environmental, structural, collective forces, and is birthed from that. So it's, we're not um, completely throwing out the individual in favor of a collectivism, you know, a collective ontology. But we're we're understanding intricately how the co- individual emerges from the collective and their continual uh, relationship and entanglement.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, entanglement's a good word. I think um you know, in, even in terms of like what we talk about on this channel is like integral theory. For those of you who are new on Twitch. Uh, we talk about integral theory, we talk about the hippie stuff that Michael Brooks was, was interested in. And that's what Growing Down really is. And that's mutations as well as a sort of complement to that. Um, but, you know, in terms of the history of consciousness and the history of, uh, of the development of the modern sense of self as the individual, uh, I think this turn towards the collective and understanding that the the individual is a process that is entangled in collectivity is a deeper way to understand and appreciate our individuality like it's it's a deeper way to to realize the individual and to understand the individual um i even even think like a a decade ago um just on the kind of the the internet culture analog sense uh you know maria popova was talking about um, combinatorial creativity and uh, she has she has a very interesting uh, blog you may have heard of it brain pickings um it's been around for ages now but one of the things she was talking about with internet culture and curation is the kind of sense that we are understanding what it means to be an individual better now in the sense that they're kind of an assemblage there's a sort of rhizomatic quality of like all of these distributed ideas and influences that pop up in a very unique singularity of a person's you know synthesis of those ideas or aggregation of those ideas and maybe that's an innovation maybe that's a, a movie like star wars in terms of cultural production which is an in- influenced by you know uh, 19 mid-century pulp uh, science fiction films and uh, World War II uh, films and 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 stories etc. and then kind of all swarming together to create Star Wars is one of these examples of kind of an aggregate cultural creativity. But the idea is the individual is is more of this network, right? We come together as individuals through this um, assemblage of different influences. And I think to understand this is to is to appreciate the individual better. And we might even argue that a society that has this concrescence that you were talking about is a society that actually is, is better suited for the individual to flourish and better suited for the collective to be um, in a healthy sense enacted, right? So I think, you know, talking about these things in terms of Cultural evolution and cultural phenomenology, in terms of our sense of self and world, our sense of collective identity and individual identity, are very important. And that's definitely the consciousness dimension that Michael Brooks was very interested in. Um, So, yeah, let's see. Yeah, yeah, we did the talk about atomized individual before. Yeah, we talked about that. Uh, All right. So, I think. we're at two o'clock. So we've gone about ninety minutes, normal time. Any closing reflections, Ryan, or should we wrap it up for today?
3: Yeah. Thanks, everyone, the chat, and um, yeah, thank you, thank you, Jeremy. This was fun.
1: Awesome. All right, everybody. Uh, see you next weekend, and uh, feel free to follow up with any comments or questions on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. So take care. Have a good day, everyone.
3: Bye bye.